All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Sunshine and Brain, part of the Perry Veritas Network, the podcast where we have conversations about mental health in the world's most normal, everyday way possible. Uh, this is a slightly different episode, although something that I had been kind of thinking about and playing with and uh, doing for a little bit, but uh, aside from the very, very first episode of Sunshine, which we call episode zero, uh, which is why I guess this will be episode 11, even though there's 12 episodes on the, anyway, whatever, it doesn't matter. But the point is, is that, uh, except for the very first episode of Sunshine, which is basically just me talking for 40 minutes, basically every other episode has been uh, with at least one guest, if not two. And uh, it being September now, which uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but is uh, Suicide Awareness Month. I wanted to try to see if I could record kind of a solo episode to talk about this issue a little bit, talk about my personal experiences with um, suicide and suicidal ideations and um, and to just uh, open up the dialogue in terms of uh, how, um, how this sort of thing um, uh, impacts us. I wanted to see if I could, uh, let's see if I could maybe do that. So we'll give this a shot, <laughs> see if I actually managed to, uh, put this episode up, uh, get out some coherent thoughts enough to sort of put this episode up. So let's see how this goes. But in any case, uh, first things first, uh, I've got a lot of irons in the fire in terms of this podcast and what's going on. Uh, last episode we put up was um, another conversation with me and Andre. I think fully 50% of the episodes I've published so far are with me and Andre uh, talking about one thing or another. Uh, right now we are kind of like in the middle of a dialogue about religion. What about it works? What doesn't work? If we were to kind of do a thought experiment where we reinvent religion, uh, what would we do? How would we sort of make a, you know, what would we make it look like? So I realized that that's, uh, not exactly a conversation about mental health, but it kind of is because I do think a lot of, uh, our issues with mental health go back to our origin stories, right? To the kind of different value systems and things that sort of raise us to be who we are, religion being obviously a big part of that. So so related, but also uh, just kind of fun to talk with Andre and dive in deep on issues like this and go, so I actually don't know how many parts we're going to get through on our conversation about religion. It's not like it's a small topic. So chances are we'll go through a few parts like that and then we'll see. But in the meantime, I have an interview um, with, uh, um, I think it's going to be really, really interesting, uh, currently scheduled for Monday. So that's a, an episode that I'll produce and hopefully have up here pretty quick. And then I have uh, three other potential interviewees that I'm working on that I'm really excited to talk to and uh, produce and, um, and share with you. It's one of those uh, things where these are folks that I've been sort of talking to for a couple months now. And, uh, you know, they've all agreed that they would be very interested in doing interviews with me and being on this podcast. But finding time to do it is always a different story, uh, especially during COVID and, you know, everybody sort of filling in their schedules in their own ways and trying to figure out how to be as healthy as possible. So, you know, kind of sort of navigate that. But all three of them have said that they'd like to you know, potentially record with me at some point in September. And so, you know, hopefully in a couple of weeks or so, we'll get some of those episodes published and uh, put out there for you. Um, and I actually, for the first time, recorded an episode 
last week that I think that I may never publish. I don't know. Well, I need to think about it. But as of right now, I'm planning, <laughs> I'm planning on never publishing it. Um, it's one of those things where, you know, there's like super vulnerable things that I'm talking about here. And granted, I don't actually have any listeners yet. You know, like if you're listening to this, it's probably because you already know me. And if you don't already know me and you're listening to this, then you are like the first one. I mean, that's like getting in on the ground floor. <laughs> it's probably always going to be the ground floor, but it's fine. It's fine. I'm not actually doing this for listeners. I'm doing it because it's cathartic and fun and gives me a chance to talk to people. And uh, if we actually end up having listeners and even better because maybe it'll, you know, do some good in normalizing these conversations that, um, that are really helpful and, and good to have. But, uh, but yeah, this, this particular episode was, it's, it's, uh, it's really about a trauma that uh, both I and the interviewee sort of have in common. It's a thing that happened to, you know, sort of both of us. And while she has already done a ton of work on that particular trauma and has, you know, just been an absolute beast when it comes to, you know, confronting it, uh, normalizing it, being able to talk about it and everything else, uh, when I shared my piece, it was super vulnerable. And the second we finished recording, I was like, I'm not sure that I'll ever be able to listen to that conversation again <laughs> or edit it, do an intro, let alone publish it on Spotify. Like I have a lot of work to do in that space before I can even begin to be ready to talk about stuff there. You know, and I do, I talk about a lot of vulnerable things here, man. I mean, this episode is going to be about suicide, right? And that's like a really vulnerable thing. And I've already talked on, you know, different episodes about taking a fork to my inner thigh, about that kind of self-harm, about suicidal ideations and things like that. And all those things are super vulnerable, vulnerable to share. But something about this piece is just that much more so. And I think if for no other reason for me, you know, it's just because I just haven't, I haven't worked on it extensively yet. I mean, for me, it's sort of an ancient, you know, more, uh, it's a much older trauma, you know, it's um, from when I was a kid. And so from a while ago, and to be honest, a lot of my kind of mental health things may or may not be directly connected to that. We just haven't gone into it in my therapy yet. It's really interesting. I mean, recording this podcast and doing this sunshine and brain project and all that stuff, has kind of put me in a place where, you know, I get to talk with other people and confront these things. And, you know, at least during the conversations and then during the hours and hours that it takes to edit and then putting it up and listening to it sort of again and again, you hear it. And when I hear it, for me, at least, it's like I don't feel alone. It takes me back to that place that I am with the person when I'm having the conversation. And then I feel like there are things about me that aren't just for me, you know, there's things about me that I can connect with other people about. And I always knew that there would be a chance that I'd record an episode and then never publish it. I always kind of assumed that it would be because I interviewed a person and then for whatever reason, they're just not comfortable with it being published. And I've always been fine with that because, you know, recording these episodes sort of aren't about publication. And if anything, I'm really glad that the first episode that I'm not ready to publish is because of me, not because of an interviewee, because it 
you know, I'm pretty empathetic anyway, but it puts me in a place where I can be that much more empathetic. Where someone says, I'm not comfortable with putting this up. I know we recorded it and you put a lot of effort, dude, into editing it. And I'm really appreciative of that, but I don't think I can put this up. I'm so sorry. Then I can now answer, it's fine. That's happened to me too. I've got a two and a half hour episode that I just stuffed in an envelope on my desktop and I, I may never, ever look at it again. That might be okay, actually. So, uh, yeah, this is, um, this is pretty vulnerable stuff. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, since the last episode with Dre in the intro, there really isn't that much that's changed. Still on the dating app moratorium, <laughs> just dating moratorium in general. Uh, definitely really kind of relishing that space a little bit, you know, still being as uh, love obsessed as I've ever been, but also kind of digging into the idea of, I have given myself two months to just look through and fix things that needed fixing, uh, follow up on things needed following up on, kind of go through that long list of stuff that I'd sort of been growing now for a little while of shit that I need to take care of and go through and just kind of take care of that stuff. So it's been really, really nice between uh, taking care of tooth issues and apartment issues and getting my daughter started with school and dealing with issues related to that, you know, uh, to be able to really focus in on that, uh, focus in on myself, make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm being as loving and supportive of myself as I can possibly be. And then when I'm ready, you know, on the date that I've kind of assigned myself on October 1st, which is less than a month away now to be able to, you know, get back into it in a way that is uh, a lot more healthy. So, uh, so yeah, that part has been great. And I have, uh, oh man, today I just got like, just so inspired to get all this shit done. It was crazy. And I think it was because I got my teeth cleaned. <laughs> I mean, like, this is like, uh, I can't express to you how much I hate the dentist. <laughs> I just can't. I really, I, I can't express to you how much I hate the dentist. All of the things that go into my mouth at a dentist are none of the things that I ever want in my mouth in my life. <laughs> just people's fingers who I'm not like dating. <laughs> I got instruments. It's so much better now than it used to be. I went in today, so I had my I had my tooth extraction yesterday, and not yesterday, last week, and they put the screw in there uh, to be able to attach the false tooth. You know, a few weeks from now, once that's healed, so that's healing. It's fine. It's ridiculous. I mean, they freaking gave me Vicodin as like in case there's pain. It just like gave it to me. <laughs> like, why did you just give me Vicodin? The guy told me in the beginning, like the very first meeting, he was like, "Yeah, hey, you're probably not going to feel any pain." Maybe there'll be some discomfort, but usually it's just fine. But I'll prescribe you Vicodin anyway, just in case. And then they were like, you know, very concerned faces. Make sure that you don't, you know, just take it right away. You know, try an ice pack. If that doesn't work, then try aspirin. If that doesn't work, then sure, go ahead and go with the highly addictive narcotic. <laughs> like, why did you give it to me? Why did you give it to me if I was going to have to, like, go through the Anyway. I have a fucking bottle of like 12 Vicodin. So I was looking at it and I was like, hmm, I wonder what the street value of this is. <laughs> like one tooth surgery and now I'm just committed to a life of crime. 
you know, I'm just going to go out and sell Vicodin or whatever. But I looked it up. It's like at most 25 bucks a pill, you know, usually more like five bucks a pill between five and 20. It's just like pointless. So whatever. I wasn't really going to sell it because that's illegal. So I just threw it out. I definitely had a couple of friends who were like, yo, you should save that Vicodin. You should save that Vicodin for me later on, you know, in case I want it. And I'm like, the last thing I need is a bottle of 12 Vicodin in my apartment. It just have another thing to be worried about you know i don't need that shit so fucking threw it out my mom was like you gotta throw it out in the dirtiest bag of garbage that you can find and i'm like why <laughs> what are you talking? what what do you mean is this like a thing do you go on the internet and read it like how to correctly throw out vicodin like i didn't i didn't know you know she was like just make a bunch of pasta and then, like, mix it up in the pasta and toss it in there like that. So I didn't do that. I just threw it out. <laughs> but if she asks, I'm going to tell her I made a bunch of pasta and put it in there like that. And I'd appreciate it if you would tell her that, too. So, uh, yeah, that way we can uh, work together to deceive my mom and her ridiculous, uh, ridiculous assertions. In any case, uh, so, yeah, so my tooth is feeling fine. Honestly, the hardest thing that I'm dealing with there is, like, not tonguing the hole. And I realized that uh, every single person here who has a seventh grader inside of them heard me say tonguing the hole just then and just went, you know, kind of, or just like a little, just kind of laughed a little. <laughs> but that's what it is. Just trying to keep my tongue off the space there. But I can't, I mean, how am I supposed to do that? Like, it just needs to go there. You know, the tongue is like, the tongue is like uh, an octopus in your mouth. <laughs> Ever think about it that way? Like every human is part octopus and that part is the tongue. Because it, it is like an octopus. You know, like if you see an octopus, they're just like probing with their tentacles and tasting the things and seeing the things and just it's all curiosity and smarts coming from the curiosity. Well, that's kind of how the tongue functions, right? So you're like... It just needs to know. So like, you know, constantly going over there, feeling the stitches. They put like a little plastic cap on top of the stud. So it's not like the titanium there. It's like a plastic cap, which I think also it's designed to keep the hole a little bit bigger so that when they take that off and then snap the tooth onto it, that it kind of, uh, it kind of leaves like a little space there for it to go in. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent certain, but that's like, that's like what, um, what's kind of happening there. So I want to like feel that all the time. And the stitches are the kinds that, um, that uh, disintegrate, you know? So it's already, they're already sort of kind of starting to come out or whatever. And so it just makes me want to play with it even more and just even talking about it. I want to take a break and just check it out, but I'm not going to do that because that's not, uh, that's not what we're, what we're here for. So then today I went in and I uh, did like a straight cleaning and uh, I don't like the dentist. I don't like the dentist. I do not, do not like the dentist, which isn't to say that I don't like them as people. I think that they're really good people. And as a matter of fact, I'm smart enough to know that uh, the health of your teeth is pretty central to the health of you. Like if you were to go back in history and just look at all the reasons why people have died throughout the history of humanity, you know, it's gonna be like cancer, You've died from cancer, you've died from other people, or you've died from like tooth issues, you know, like uh, a cavity that got 
infected that then infected your blood and that's it, you're dead, you know, or an abscess that then pops and I don't know what, I don't, can't list all the reasons, but you know, man, taking care of your teeth is pretty important, generally speaking, when it comes to health, longevity, stuff like that. But in the meantime, dentists terrify me. So um, I went in today for straight cleaning. The first thing is, is that the doctor checks out the surgery spot, says it looks good, and then starts telling me about like all this other work that they have to do, which immediately the walls start closing in. You know, I can just feel like the tears like welling up in my eyes. Then it's time for a cleaning. At first I'm like, yeah, there's just, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take nitrous. Let's do it. I went to college. Do you have like a canister or something? Do you blow up a balloon and then give it to me? Oh, oh, like a constant stream of nitrous. It's a, it's a, a thing that you put on your nose. And I was like expecting the thing that you usually see in hospitals where it's like, the little plastic tubes that then go around your nose and there's like little, like little nostril outlets or whatever that you kind of plug in to your nose there and they're both blowing oxygen up your nose and you're just kind of like sniffing like that. So this, it was kind of like that and that it was the two tubes, but instead of the two nostril things, it was like a cap over your nose and then one nostril thing going into one nostril blowing mostly oxygen. But then she started the um, nitrous going and it didn't help like at all, like just the whole having my nose covered, it's going up just one nostril. It kind of gave me more anxiety. So I backed out of the nitrous thing <laughs> much as I wouldn't have minded being high while being taken care of there. Um, I was just, uh, I was uh, ready to not um, have that thing on my nose. So I asked her not to do that. So she took that off and then uh, just went at the teeth cleaning. And then it's just like, pick your poison, you know? Like either the scraper that doesn't squirt water and makes your teeth and brain squeak and it's just scraping your teeth or the water squirter one that like shoots water super fast and cleans them faster. But in the meantime, it's like this high pitched squeal that's like happening in your brain, you know, um, just highly unpleasant, highly, highly unpleasant. And I have a history with dentists. I mean, if you listen to the last episode, you, you know, in the intro heard me talk about how when I was a kid, I had a bunch of adult teeth coming in and baby teeth that weren't falling out. And so in a two week period, my pediatric dentist pulled 14 teeth, seven one week and seven the week after. It became sort of a funny story where we sort of as a family look back and reminisce about just how ridiculous it was just a poor kid walking around with hardly any teeth in his mouth. And like my parents would say to me before I went to bed, all right, Josh, you know, don't forget to brush your gums. Cause that's like, what was there? <laughs> Wasn't any teeth for me to brush just gums, you know? So, uh, that was, um, funny, but, uh, oh man, I am, uh, extremely uncomfortable at dentists now. And I think that that's probably one of the reasons. Certainly it's not comfortable for anyone to put their fingers in your mouth unless it's invited. Yeah. Unpleasant. Very, very unpleasant. So that was like an hour and a half of hell, which meant that when I got home and there was like all this extra anxiety to like get shit done. I was like looking around my apartment, like what needs to be done? So I cleaned the crap out of my kitchen, clean my, uh, carpet, like extensively, did a target run, 
got a couple of brand new uh, shower curtains just because the old ones are just looking a little danky to me. Ordered a new couch, you know, <laughs> like did all these things to sort of turn around and uh, just, you know, things that I had been wanting to take to take care of, but just hadn't. And um, yeah, something about the anxiety being at the dentist today inspired me to go ahead and, you know, take care of that. So just uh, one of those things. But anyway, so yeah, that's where that's at. I'm, you know, working through all this shit that I want to, I want to get accomplished, you know, still swimming every day. I don't think I've missed a single day. I think the one day, did I swim the day? You know what? Two days after surgery, I didn't swim. But I swam the day after dental surgery, the day after that, and the day after that, I just couldn't for some reason. But uh, every other day, and um, amount of laps are going up, and I'm sort of feeling stronger and stronger and more and more confident. So uh, that part is um, is definitely cool. And then, you know, beyond that, my girls starting school last week and this week. My oldest started school last week. My youngest is starting school this week. And the whole process of kind of getting that going. You know, I don't think there's a single person in the whole wide world today that isn't going through some sort of PTSD or uh, TSD. You know, know, PTSD is like post-traumatic stress disorder. But the thing is, is that we're not out of this yet. So it was really more traumatic stress disorder. You know, people who are stuck in their homes and like dying to get out somehow, losing their minds you know, I just think everyone is going through it. And to be having this in an election year in the States with uh, that election now being two months away with the narrative coming from both sides about that election being so divisive and scary and everything else, you know, it just adds to the, to the stress and the anxiety and the, you know, ongoing trauma that we're all, you know, sort of struggling through and trying to live with. So this being, you know, Suicide Awareness Month is particularly powerful this year. You know, when when quarantine started, and I haven't, like, I don't, I kind of unlocked the code when it comes to following the news a little while ago, uh, because I had been a news junkie, and then the Sandy Hook story happened where that uh, person, you know, shot up an elementary school and, and killed a bunch of first graders. And I had to shut it off. Like watching that news story, I could just feel myself heading towards a nervous breakdown. That was awful, awful, awful. And as soon as that happened and I felt it deteriorating me in that way, I was like, I just, I need to have a different relationship with the news. I can't follow it like this all the time. I just can't have CNN on all the time. You know, it's just really, really unhealthy. And so I put a lot of thought and sort of trial and error and different things and sort of found my way to, you know, a thing that works for me, which is I listen to a couple of podcasts about politics and about the news. And between those, depending on how many I'm listening to, two or three podcasts, I kind of get what I need, you know, And then if there's an emergency or something going on that I hear about, then it's like, okay, I'll turn the TV on and see what's going on. In Southern California, we get fires a lot. And there's fires all over California right now, but we've been, knock on wood, really lucky so far this season in San Diego. 
So, I mean, I did have a fire right next to my apartment, a little brush, this little brush fire helicopter came over and put it out within 25 minutes. But, but besides for that, there hasn't been a single uh, fire in San Diego, knock on wood. Now that I say this, there's going to be a million tomorrow, but, um, but we've been really lucky in that way. You know, I got family up in the Bay Area and they've spent days with their doors closed because the smell of the smoke is too, too unhealthy for them to have their doors open. So that's sort of what life can be like. So when something like that happens here, then it's like, yeah, turn, turn your TV on, dude, see what's going on, you know, check the, um, check all the apps, you know, make sure that there isn't an evacuation order, you know, all that stuff. So I follow it, you know, along those lines. But besides that, I try to stay away from it. You know, Trump's voice just fucking droning in your ear, like, you know, with all the crazy ass shit that he says, let alone all the other politicians as well. It's like, I don't need to hear it to know what's happening. You know, point is, is that I, I, I'm not really kind of following it all that closely, but at the same time, I'm following it close enough to see what's kind of going on with all the trauma of sort of all the political stuff. So you've got folks on the left who are looking at Trump and saying, there's no way, even if he, first of all, he could easily potentially cheat and win the election, right? He could figure out a way, you know, miscount numbers or do whatever where, you know, now we won't know even at all who wins. He could also claim that even if Biden wins, that he didn't really win, that Biden cheated, that you know, that it was uh, a tainted election, right? Like he could totally do that. And he probably will, because that's what he's done the whole time. Like the idea that Trump, if he loses this election, is going to walk quietly out of office is bananas, because it's not going to happen, right? Which is so fucking stressful. I mean, an election is stressful enough. But now you're looking at an election where, you know, what we could have at least almost always in at least my lifetime in American history rely upon is a peaceful transfer of power. Even when the person who got elected, you really disagree with, you know, there's going to be a peaceful transfer of power. I think like after uh, Al Gore lost the election to George Bush Jr., there were some staffers that took all the W's off of the keyboards as they left the White House for the new team to come in. That's ridiculous. They just, I mean, that's childish, obviously. But like you hear that news story and it's like, oh, okay, well, that was childish and dumb, you know. But that's like the most I ever heard in terms of there being an, you know, unwillingness to transfer power in a peaceful way. I do not get the feeling that Trump would be willing to do that even after a second term. God for fucking bid, he gets a second term. God for fucking bid, he gets a second term. I don't think he's going to win this next election. But also, I, you know, who the fuck am I? But I did think he was going to win the last election. But I don't think he's going to win this election. Um, I also don't think Biden is that much better. I mean, Biden is better. I just don't think he's that much better. Well, the thing I'm trying to say here is that there's a lot of fucking trauma. <laughs> there's a lot of issues going on. So this being Suicide Awareness Month is particularly apropos in 2020. You know, not just that, but as the quarantine piece was, this is what I was going to say before, as the quarantine piece was coming down and people were starting to, you know, work from home if they could, lose their jobs because that's what was going to happen. 
stay home to avoid getting sick. You know, all of the places where people could go to massage their mental health needs, then shut down. You know, think about folks who really rely on just going to the beach to look at the water, to feel good about the world or um, hiking and, you know, things along those lines and all that shit just shut right down. Eventually, you know, in the beginning, they kind of kept the hiking trails open, but not long after that, you know, pretty much everything shut down because people were just going to what was open, <laughs> you know, never like folks who never hiked a day in their life were just like outside. Yeah, let's go hike here, you know, but you don't hike. I don't care. It's an activity outside the home. That's what I'm going to do, <laughs> you know, and that's like just what kind of happened. And I was like looking around going, fuck what is going to happen to suicide numbers in our country if we're going to be spending a bunch of months indoors? You know? Like, I use the metaphor, and I've used it way too much, so this maybe I'll just make this the last time I ever use it, but it's like someone coming to my house and grabbing my toolbox and dumping it out and leaving for me just like a mallet and a screwdriver and saying, now build something with that. And you're like, how am I supposed to do that? All I have is a mallet and a screwdriver, right? All of my tools as a human being, let alone a human being with depression and anxiety, all of my tools were essentially taken away from me, except for like a couple, you know, what do you do at home to be healthy? You know, how do you manage your, you know, particular challenges and things like that? You know, so for me, it's like being around other people. That's pretty key, you know? going to the office and working with my crazy colleagues and just being in their energy and space is so good to me. And it's, it's good for me. I've been, I haven't had a chance to do that since the beginning of March, you know, feeling like I'm moving my daughter's lives forward as a father, right? Like having that feeling, but they hadn't really been in school since March. And what happens is, is that in a way you kind of end up in this weird state of arrested development as a kid, you know, what if you have a kid that's got like social anxiety and, and is actually relishing <laughs> in the idea of not having to go outside or meet people? It's awful. You know, you may relate to that as a matter of fact. And it might be something that you have in terms of social anxiety. And, you know, in that way, it's like quarantine is like this gift to your illness where you can feel comfortable and don't and not feel anxious because you know that you're not missing out on anything. No one's getting together. And you know that it would be irresponsible for you to go and do things that might require facing some anxieties, you know? So it's like a major comfort. And, uh, but it's not necessarily comfort that's good for us, you know? It's important to push ourselves to, you know, find our way to being stronger, which isn't to say I always do that, but it's still important to do that. So I have not looked at the news to see where suicide numbers in our nation are right now. However, if I was to guess, I would say it's up. The amount of people who have lost jobs, lost family members, dealt with the fear of being sick and have been stuck at home now for months, I can't imagine it hasn't gone up. I mean, I can tell you for me, one of those podcasts that I listen to for the news is a New York Times podcast, The Daily. They put out this podcast daily because it's called, you know, The Daily. 
And it's uh, just usually a half hour, 45 minute podcast. They do a deep dive into one new story and then give us, you know, what else we need to know for the day in terms of things happening. It's a great way to stay up to date. But they started doing this special Sunday podcast called Sunday Reads, special COVID edition, sharing the ways in which folks are using quarantine and self-isolation towards their benefit, you know. So it's like, I you know, had been so distant from my spouse for all these years. And then finally this self-isolation things happen. And now I'm, I'm learning things about my wife that I never knew. And we're closer than we've ever been because of this. And we started reading and and all this stuff. And, you know, meanwhile, when my daughters aren't here, it's like me and my dog, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like not. Yeah. She's as close to me as she's ever going to be. You know what I mean? Our communication, it's, uh, it's sparse. She doesn't speak English. I mean, she does, but it's like she's got, you know, a handful of words. And uh, mostly she just follows me around wherever I go and stares at my face to make sure I'm doing all right. Because <laughs> she's a brilliant dog, but she's a fucking dog. And uh, she's not my wife. <laughs> she's not like an opportunity, you know, it's, all, all COVID is is an opportunity for dogs to become like even more, you know, codependent. I can't even imagine what my dog is going to do when I like go back to work at my office. You know, I think, yeah, I can't even imagine what she's going to do. I know what she does on a normal basis, which is that she kind of lies in front of the door, just sad until I get home, <laughs> which I didn't know until my sister was staying here with me. And uh, I left to go run some errands and she just lied by the door and waited till after I came home. So uh, that's adorable in a really sad way and speaks to uh, how much she loves me. It's not as if I said, it's not, it's not the same. It's not the same. So I couldn't even fucking like listen to those podcasts. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, I'm not listening to this, you know, it's just miserable. So, you know, I'm not looking at numbers, but it has to have gone up. Suicide has to have gone up. So this month is particularly important, you know, as an opportunity for people to be aware of what goes on in the minds of folks who have suicidal ideations and to kind of think about it, you know. Yesterday I posted a picture of my wrist and half of my forearm, my right wrist, half of my forearm, And on my right wrist pulse point, I have a semicolon tattoo. And this is a suicide awareness tattoo. It's kind of a project. You can see semicolon tattoos around, especially like when you, when you have tattoos or want tattoos, you notice tattoos. It's one of my, like, I don't know if everybody notices tattoos, but I definitely notice tattoos because I have them. And so when I, you know, see someone with a tat, I'm like, I want to look at it. I want to kind of see what's going on there. And when I see someone who has also a semicolon tattoo, I want to hug them. Um, I always want to talk to them. I want to connect with them. I just saw a guy the other day at 7-Eleven who had a semicolon tattoo. Only he got one with his wife. And the period part of the semicolon, not the comma, but the period part, they made into a heart. And this was like a heart semicolon tattoo. It was really nice looking tat. And we're like online together at 7-Eleven. I look over at him and I'm just like, matching. And I held up my wrist, you know, and then we kind of had this moment of uh, not being alone, right? Like, 
I got one, you got one, I have thoughts, you have thoughts. We'd have been strangers in 7-Eleven without that. But because of this tattoo, I now know that you, stranger in 7-Eleven, have dealt with something very similar to me. And I just feel like as a process, that's something that can be and is really, really helpful for folks. So I posted that on my, uh, you know, Instagram account and uh, just had one of those nice sorts of moments where, you know, you see how quickly people like it and how quickly people comment and the comments that they give you, you know, love you so much, you know, thank you for being alive, things like that, or just simple hearts, you know, those kinds of messages are, are really, really good to hear and good to read. So, you know, you post something like that and next thing you know, you get these love messages that are like, you know, I might actually not be alone because I actually feel so fucking alone a lot of times. But, uh, but then someone commented on my, on my post and said, um, you know, but, but we are alone. And even when we're with people, we feel really alone. And I posted her back. I wrote back and said, yeah, you know, you're right. I feel that way too. Pretty much most of the time, you know, a little distance. And I was wondering maybe if she was making a comment about, you know, COVID right? Like maybe that's a COVID comment. Like we are alone, but even when we're with people, we can't get close to them because of COVID. That's true. You know, and that's even true beyond COVID for me, at least, you know, where you feel alone and then you try to connect with a person and you just don't necessarily feel connected. You know, I've had a lot of people in my life who I've had, you know, multi-year relationships say to me, as long as I've known you, dude, it's like I don't really know you. And um, I think that's probably an experience that a lot of people like me can relate to, where you just kind of learn through time to keep things close to the chest, really protect yourself from sharing fears and vulnerabilities with people, because you kind of recognize that maybe our fears and vulnerabilities are a bit freakier than other people's. You know what I mean? Like, two people who don't have a mental illness or talking about the shit that stresses them out. It's a certain type of conversation, but you want to pipe in and join the conversation. And it's like, you know, the things that you might have to share are, are not the kind of things that they're comfortable hearing or want to hear anything else. And so what do you do? You keep it to yourself and you feel that much more alone and depression is designed to fucking make you feel alone, which is why you feel so alone. You know, it's like, just what it's built to do. Like depression makes you feel alone in the same way that the common cold makes you sneeze. Like that is like one of the first and most prominent, you know, symptoms of depression is this feeling of great loneliness. You know, it's like just there. The first time I really, I mean, when I was like a teenager, I remember there being self-harm thoughts, but I never really did anything that was much in the way of self-harm as a teenager. Uh, but when I went to college, that was the first time that it became really clear to me that 
suicide was a thing that I was probably capable of. This is like very strange, you know, thought that I just kind of had in my head of, hey, this is a thing that I could do. And so because I was still young and a thought like that is going to kind of resonate in a way and you want to sort of, at least for me, I wanted to kind of dive into it more. You know, I, I, I sort of thought about it and, and it was like, well, since I could do it, since I know that I'm capable of doing it, the question I have is, should I? I, you know, that was like a real question for me. Should I? It was like looking ahead, like, well, what am I, what, what can I possibly experience in life that's going to be great? And I just didn't know, you know? I think I might have already known at that point that I was kind of on a path that wasn't exactly mine. And what I remember is, you know, this one night just kind of on campus walking out and finding a place to sit in the middle of a field where I was just by myself and nobody around me and crying because I knew I could do it. I knew I could, I knew I was capable of committing suicide crying because I was thinking about how painful that would be for my loved ones and I didn't want to hurt them. But also crying because I was trying to figure out like what was the purpose of sticking around? Like what, like what was the purpose of sticking around? And what I remember is just kind of going, um, I don't really know how to answer that question, but maybe let's just give it a shot. Like maybe let's just, just try life, just try it and see what happens. And that was like literally what the thought was. Like that early experience, I must have been like 19, 20 years old, but that early experience was the first time that I was like, you know, I don't have to be here if I don't want to. I wish I know it, like theoretically anyone can kill themselves, right? Because it's your life and you have hands and ability and a mind to figure out a way to do it. But, and this is going to sound really fucking weird to anybody who's never dealt with this before, but in a weird way, it takes actually quite a bit of bravery to, to follow through with it. Like there's a lot of strength in suicide, even though you're giving up on life because of the action that it requires in order to do it, you know, or if not strength in conviction, right? There's no more final decision than that. And if you're not doing it as a call for help, which is to say you're committing suicide in order to fail at it and not actually die, but get attention and the help that you need, but doing it to actually just do it. That's a different, um, that's a different ball game. You know, it's a certain kind of person that has that ability to do that, you know. So I don't know what it was about me at 20, but for whatever reason, it just became really obvious that I could do that. But then I decided not to. And to just kind of keep plugging away at life and to see, you know, what happens. So that's what I did, you know. Finished college, plugged away at life. 
different steps were hard. You know, I put myself on this path that other folks had sort of designed for me towards being a rabbi and sort of followed that path, you know, had moments of really wonderful joy, moments of great inspiration, moments of feeling down, et cetera. You know, between then and then, you know, the past five years, there weren't like a ton of suicidal ideations, although I did spend my entire 33rd year of life 100% certain that I was going to die at some point that year. Uh, I don't really know how that happened, but I think my theory is, is that my earliest memories, like from when I was a kid, my dad was in his young 30s at that point because he was 25 when I was born. So my earliest memories are like him 29, but my earliest like strong memories are of my dad are when he was like 32, 33. And for some reason in my child mind at that point, that was like the oldest I could ever imagine being was as old as him at that point, you know? And so it, for some reason, it just kind of sunk in my brain that I was going to live to 32 or 33 and then die and then be reincarnated as myself as a baby and then live my life again and then die at 32, 33 and then start again. So it was like this whole thing where in my head I was like, yeah, that's just like what's going to happen to me. And ever since I was a kid, that was what I, my thought was. But like when I was a 10, I was like not afraid of it because I was like, yeah, 33 is like a while from now. I'm fine. <laughs> and then I fucking hit that age and spent the entire year terrified. <laughs> I like wrote a note to the family, you know, if I die, read this. Uh, it was like very strange, very, very strange. Then I turned 34 and I was like looking for like the lightning to come out of the sky and strike me down. Everything kind of opened up then. But aside from that entire year, I didn't really get sort of suicidal until I was actually diagnosed with um, severe clinical depression and anxiety. And it was when I was diagnosed with that, that I was, that I was really, really, in my, you know, oof. I mean, there's been dark places since then, but that was a really dark place, a really, really dark place. Um, and at that time, yeah, suicidal ideations were like, you know, just my normal morning. And uh, therapy was actually very helpful. The type, type of therapy I do is called dialectical behavioral therapy, although I do a lot more different types now because my therapist is awesome. And she pulls from a bunch of different traditions. But in the beginning there, it was really dialectical behavioral therapy. And dialectical behavioral therapy is like the, the child of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the child of psychotherapy, right? So like the type of therapy I do is like Sigmund Freud's grandchild. Um, and just to grossly oversimplify things, if psychotherapy and cognitive behavioral therapy are meant to put someone in their brain who maybe isn't in their brain enough to think about things like consequences for the decisions you're making or like, why am I doing what I'm doing right now? Type thoughts, you know, um, that's sort of how that therapy functions and what it tries to do is to increase the ability of the brain to take more control over your life in a positive way. You know, dialectical behavioral therapy does that in a very specific way by pointing out the dialectics in life you know, specifically the good and the bad that is found in every situation, right? So how does a dialectic work? Well, like when I think about suicide or when I think about depression specifically, on one hand, it's like, why, why did my life take this turn? 
And why did I end up with depression? And why do I have to fucking deal with this? It sucks. You know, like, fuck you, God. (laughs) But for real, fuck you, God, for giving me this shit. You know, like, that's like where that's at. And you'd be right to think that. Right? Because, yeah, fuck you, God. Like, depression? Why did you invent that? Not that I think God invented that. But you know what I mean. You know, but then on the other hand, you can also look at it as a dialectic and say, it's a gift. It's my brain trying to tell my body what it needs to do in order to be healthy. Right? Sit still. Stop doing this job. Right? Get out of this marriage. Right? That's what the brain is telling me to do. And so, you know, a thing that's really hard and bad suddenly also becomes a thing that's the greatest gift that you ever received in life. Right? That's kind of how the dialectic works. And it's not always just for big things. It's a lot of times just for little things. You know, it's a dialectic about eating a cookie. (laughs) It's good because it's delicious and sugar and it makes you feel good and the sugar does things to your brain and just makes you happy. It's bad because too much sugar is not good. You know, that's kind of how the dialectic works. So I, uh, you know, started doing that therapy and started kind of getting the help I needed and things like that. But yeah, it wasn't until I was really in that space and then officially diagnosed with severe clinical depression and anxiety was before that. It was the time before that where my suicidal ideations were sort of the most difficult. And in dialectical behavioral therapy, I learned how to kind of rank the intensity of a suicidal ideation. Um, I've talked about this a couple times, but a few episodes ago, so it's not a terrible thing to kind of rehash this. But very quickly, you know, think of it as like you grade your suicidal ideation or self-harm ideation on a scale of zero to five. Uh, zero is no thoughts of suicide. You're just walking about your day. There's nothing kind of going on, you know, in, in your happy, in your happy self, or maybe not so happy, but whatever it is, there aren't suicidal ideations happening in your brain at that time. That's what a zero is. And in an ideal place, you're just at a zero all the time. A one is a fleeting thought, you know, and I actually have those quite a bit, although much more rare now than I used to. Um, but it's stuff like, you know, like you're, I mean, for me, like I'll be walking, you know, somewhere and a truck will drive by and I'll look at the tires underneath the truck as it's driving by. And in my head, I'll think to myself, I could just fling my body underneath there and then get run over by the truck. And that would be it. You know, I could do that. And then like you kind of shake your head and snap out of it and then it's gone. So a one that kind of fleeting, that fleeting suicidal ideation is, it's like anywhere from, you know, a 10 second thought to like a five minute thought. It's, it comes and goes and it's not all that distracting, although it's a little bit distracting, but that's kind of what a one is. A two is like a one only more so. So in a two, you know, you've got, thoughts that are lasting longer. It's more distracting. Instead of 10 seconds to five minutes, this is like a 10 minute thought or a 15 minute thought, you know, or even 20 minutes where, you know, you're just really thinking about it. 
So really contemplating throwing myself under the wheels of the truck, you know, really contemplating what it would be to slam my car into a wall, right? Like really, really contemplating those thoughts and it's distracting and it lasts a while and it may, it may even kind of fuck with you as the day goes on where, you know, you're like, well, I had that thought and it lasted for a while and holy shit, is there something wrong with me? Right? Like really distracting. So that's a two. Uh, with a three, when you hit a three, those are much longer thoughts and tend to be plan oriented. So you might not have a set plan, but you might be thinking about your plan during that time. You might be stuck there in that thought for hours and hours and hours, you know, three, four, five, six hours of just trying to figure out a plan of obsessing about killing yourself, you know, being sort of in that space. That's, um, that's a three. A four is you have a plan and you're moving towards doing it. Like a four is you are driving your car to the location where you're going to take it off a cliff or driving to the ammo store to buy uh, shotgun shells for your shotgun to buy, you know, sort of ammunition for your weapons, you know, going to the drugstore to buy the amount of drugs that you need to do it. Right. That's what a four is. You're, you're moving in the direction, right? You're like, you've got your plan all set and you're on your way towards doing it. And then a five is you are enacting your plan. So you're at a five when you're putting the barrel of the gun in your mouth, you are at a five when you're lifting the pills to your mouth. You're at a five when you're speeding the car up and heading it towards a wall. You know, those different ways that a person could do it. Like that's where the five is at. You're at a five when you're on the bridge and you've, you know, you're moving to climb over the railing, right? That's a five. So, terrifying, but helpful to kind of rank it that way because then I can, it helps me to kind of keep track of where the thoughts are. You know, like ones are very common for me. You know, it's been a few days since I've had a one, but a one is super common to me. A one is like, you know, a fleeting thought when I'm about to do something I really don't want to do, like go to the dentist, which by the way, didn't have a one today going to the dentist, which is interesting because I, I could have, could have easily had a one today on the way to the dentist. You know, I could get my teeth clean or I could kill myself. You know what I mean? Like, which is the better option? I'm going with teeth cleaning. You know, when you're in that space, it's like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the other option's better. But yeah, one is pretty common. Twos are more uncommon for me now. Used to be a lot more common. Uh, twos were pretty much, there was a time where pretty much every time I hit a one, I was going to hit a two, you know, where just... Um, just kind of, you know, lasting longer, going into more detail. You know what I mean? Uh, threes are for me at least a little bit less common, but what I found for me on the threes is that once I kind of had my set plan for what I, you know, was going to do if I was going to kill myself, then 
you don't tend to spend a lot of time on threes unless you really, really don't want to do it. You can kind of get stuck on three, but then you can also go three, four, five, like really quick. You can go from a two to a five in no time whatsoever, depending on the factors that kind of lead into it. So, you know, a one is like a way of life for me. A two is also basically a way of life, although much less. A three is more rare. And when I'm in a three, that usually means that I'm also spiraling at the same time. And uh, so threes are pretty shitty. I have hit a four before. Um, In fact, I've hit four, probably four or five times. I don't think about those moments a ton because they're so painful and challenging. But yes, I have definitely hit a four multiple times. And then whether or not I've hit a five just depends on your definition of a five and how it's sort of being carried through. But I have written a suicide note in my life, only one, but I have written one. And I certainly have found myself in positions where I am absolutely moving in that direction. You know, I I don't know what percentage of people have had those thoughts before. I sort of feel like most teenagers at some point are going to have a thought like that. And even if it's not real, you're experimenting with drama, right? It's like, what does this do? How does this tickle my brain? And how does this, how does this tickle whatever social circumstance I'm in? So a lot of young people do have those kinds of thoughts. And I actually don't know what percentage breakdown of folks in the world have had suicidal ideations before or any real serious way in the ways that I have and other people who I know who are very depressed have. I don't know what the percentage is. I just don't. But I do know that I've been asked by people what it's like to be suicidal. And it's hard to explain. I think it's different for every person. You know, every person kind of has their own sort of version of it. I know for me, there are kind of a handful of things that lead me down the one, two, three, four, five path. And usually it's, it's a type of spiral, you know, where it's just, I, uh, Something happens that triggers my brain and I get a massive influx of serotonin, all sorts of other chemicals that then start to mix around in there, cause this crazy reaction. And the last time that I was on a four, when I wrote that suicide note, what I remember is being in a really emotional space off of an argument with someone who I really cared about at that time and looking around First, looking around for places to kind of bash my head into. There's like a corner of a desk. There's a wall. There's the table right there. And fuck, I'm going to do it. You know, like that's like where the brain was in that moment. Just the spiraling associated with that. I did not hit my head against anything. But the thought of wanting to was so overwhelming that everything started spinning 
kind of had like an anxiety attack and it exhausted me and I fell asleep off of the anxiety attack, but then woke up in like a calmer version of the anxiety attack, if that makes sense. Like it felt resolve. It felt like resolve, but I was still spiraling. So, you know, for me, it's like suicidal ideations are there to shut my brain the fuck up because a lot of times it's a dick. And so I think about, you know, committing suicide as like punishment to the brain for being so mean, you know, I thought about location. I wouldn't want to do it in my apartment around my dog, you know, anywhere where my kids could associate anything or anybody would have like a mess to clean up. I always pictured like just so weird, right? Like being kind and to other people and the way that you think about committing suicide, but that shows like how illogical it is. So for me, it was like, I'm going to drive out my car to like the woods of the desert somewhere, somewhere where like, I won't be found immediately, but I'll be found. And then just um, do it there, right? Like do it there. Come get my body. No reason to clean anything up. That was where the thought was. One time when I was at a four, my, one of my daughters had given me this really long hug before we kind of said goodbye in a moment. Just for some reason, an extra long, extra tight hug. I don't really know why she did that. Like what motivated her to do that? But that hug was actually the thing that stopped me from doing it at that point. You know? One time I was driving towards the ammo store, you know, the gun shop. And because I have an agreement with my therapist, you know, I called her in that moment and then it was her effort that pulled me out of it. You know, I don't actually want to die. I don't. You know, I want to see my daughters grow up and become adults and fall in love and have their life stories told, you know, I, I, um, I want to be old, you know, I'd love to make it to my nineties or more. I want love. You know, I want to meet someone and fall in love. And I want that love to just be fucking everything. Like I want that love to make, to make it like, I don't know. I was about to say that I, I want that love to make all the pain worthwhile, but I, I know that that's not a healthy thought. That's like codependency. What I want is I want my choices to make everything worthwhile, my growth to make everything worthwhile. And I want love to be the fucking icing on that cake. You know, I want to like, I want to live. I don't want to die. It's not like people who are suicidal, you know, aren't capable of wanting to live. Because we are, you know. But for whatever reason, for each of us, it's just an option that we have.
And when our brains behave in a certain way, it kind of makes us think about doing it. It's tough, man. And I don't want this podcast to be an advice column. You know, I'm not a therapist. I used to be a rabbi. It was a pretty good one, but rabbis are not fucking therapists. I'm really averse to like giving advice because I don't feel like I know what I'm doing in life all the time. Most of the time. I feel pretty alone a lot of the time, but I also am in a much healthier place now than I used to be because I have purpose that I love and because I have tools that really work. And because I actually really do want to live like a long time, you know, I wish I could predict, you know, what would happen in the future. Like I wish I was already in that place in life where I could like look back and be like, you know, you did it, man. You, you found, you know, love you found your way to a great career you got an amazing life story like all this pain was worthwhile because look where you are maybe one day i'm not there yet though so in the meantime there's just like more stuff to work on you know i've been i'm a big podcast guy and so i'm always constantly like trying to find different podcasts or whatever and there's this dude named Jocko Willick, I think. Jocko was his first name, Willick, because I think is his last name. Former Navy SEAL, has a podcast, interviews, really amazing interviews. Serious motherfucker. Uh, <clears throat> pretty centrist in his politics. Like, a number of things he's probably more conservative about. A number of things he's probably more liberal about, generally speaking. I think he tends to fall on the liberal side, at least based off of the interviews that I've seen with him. And he associates with politicians like Tulsi Gabbard and things like that, you know? So um, I think he's pretty liberal, but there is this little video that I saw on YouTube today. That was something like, um, what, was, what was it? You know, that's like subordinate that always came to him and was like uh, presenting problems to him. And his response was always good, you know, <laughs> fucking maybe civil. What's this like? You know, we didn't get the gear we need. Good. We didn't get the, the trucks and the cars that we need to pull off this mission. Good. There's no air support for <laughs> fucking good. What are you talking about? And he is like, because it makes you better. You know, <laughs> I'm like, okay. I understand where that's coming from. And rock on. You know, I always like I tell my girls, I love playing chess and I tell my girls, I'm only happy when I lose chess. That's the only time I like uh like I you know, that's the only time I feel like I'm learning and getting to be a better chess player. If I win every game, then I'm not gonna get any better. I have to lose if I'm gonna get better. So yeah, fuck yeah, that sentiment, yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. I get it. Yeah, you've got an issue? Good. There's no problems. There's only challenges, right? Good. Face your challenge and rise up above it and be better for it and all that jazz. A hundred percent. You know, you can leave me the fuck alone with these suicidal ideations, though. Like, I don't need that shit. <laughs> Having suicidal ideations? Good. Fuck you. <laughs> 
Uh, all the fuck yous. All of them. All of them. You can have them. Because I don't want it. You know? I don't want it anymore. You're not supposed to be suicidal if you're a rabbi, dude. That's like... You're supposed to be all sorts of stable. The definition of stable. There's a whole communities of people that couldn't have possibly projected me as someone who ever struggled in life. You know? Whole communities of people who did that. And that was never, ever me. I don't think it's anyone. I think we all struggle. But that caricature was never, ever me. And the first tattoo I ever got was a semicolon tattoo on my right pulse point. You know? It was a really singular experience of getting that tattoo. I never had an experience like that before. This strange combination of like, oh, fuck, this is painful, and I will be getting a lot more of these. (laughs) It's like 10 minutes of, oh, okay, that is a bunch of needles poking me. And I'll be getting a lot more of those. And also this crazy feeling of like, you know, in Judaism, you're not supposed to change your body. You're supposed to return your body to the earth in the same way that you got it. And I'm like, why, why would I want to do that? You know, I want my body to tell a story of the shit that I've been through along the way. High points, low points, all of it, you know. And it would be the easiest thing in the world to never tell anybody about suicidal thoughts and ideations. But here I am recording this and putting this shit up on Spotify and getting a semicolon tattoo, which means that if someone's in the know and they see my tattoo, then guess what? They know. They know I've been through some tough things. They know that I've thought about ending it all. And they know that I made it this far. The whole purpose of the semicolon tattoo is like this reminder, right? Like I could, in a grammatically correct way, end the sentence right here. I'm totally capable of doing that. But because this is my life and I'm the fucking writer and it's my choice, I could also put a semicolon in there and continue on, right? It's kind of what it is. Um, I don't know how to end this podcast. (laughs) There's no like, you know, I mean, I don't know. I'm going to put the suicide hotline number in the intro notes, you know, so that it's there. And if anyone listens to it and gets triggered, you know what to call. Um, obviously I would prefer it if nobody killed themselves ever again, ever, ever again. And I fucking wish that I could promise the people who I wish I could promise the people who I love the most that I won't ever do it. But I can't. I can't.
But I can promise that I'm going to try pretty fucking hard, you know? And I can tell you that I'm a badass for making it this far. And I'm a badass for putting that tattoo on my wrist. And I'm a badass motherfucker for recording this episode and putting it up. And what I hope is that if you are a person who has these thoughts and these feelings, that maybe you hear this and even though you feel alone as fuck, you know there's one person out there who feels the same. So that's what this is all about, right? (sighs) September is Suicide Awareness Month. If you've ever been suicidal, I hope you have people who are there for you to talk to. I hope you have support therapist, friend, mentor, anyone. If you have someone in your life who's suicidal, I hope you see their strength. I hope you have the patience and wherewithal to be there for them and to not minimize their pain by saying shit like, just get up and get moving. You know, you'll feel better tomorrow, you know that you'll have the wisdom to just listen and to be there for that person and to hold them if they need it. And if someone in your life ever did commit suicide or tried, it's not because they don't love you. It's not even necessarily because they don't love themselves. In fact, often folks do it because they do love themselves and they do love their friends and family, but they can't imagine continuing to be in their life because they don't want to continue to hurt you because they think they're hurting you. That's what their brain is telling them. We're not making this stuff up. It's real. Very real. Depending on the year, more people in America die from suicide than from car accidents or cancer. That's fucking real. But in a weird way, it's also very human, you know, that like feeling of power associated with your knowledge that this is something that you could do. I hope you don't. I hope I don't. You know, I hope the rest of us never do it again and live the rest of our days until our bodies give out and do it for us. That's what I hope. But 
in lieu of that, what I also hope is that this September will be an opportunity for folks to learn more about these thought processes, learn more about what happens when someone is suicidal, not be afraid to talk about it, not think of it as a stigma thing, but rather as something that's actually quite common and something that a lot of people think about and deal with, including me. That's all for today. Uh, we'll continue, you know, in the coming days with uh, some of the other episodes, but that's all for today. Thanks so much for joining. As always, you know, please like and share this pod with your friends and family and co-workers, fellow citizens, all that good stuff. Um, I do hope you're doing well. Thank you for listening. And I'm looking forward to sharing with you another pod as soon as it comes out. Thanks.